It's me, Rose, the host of this show. And I am back in your feeds with one more flashback to the future update episode before we really get back into the swing of things with the full-on season, which again starts April 14th. People seemed to really like the last uh, update episode, so I'm just going to do this one more. And then maybe later on in the year, if things happen that I think we should cover, I might do one more. Obviously, I could do an update on the update episode already about novel coronavirus, which now is officially a pandemic and has a name, COVID-19. But I am not actually going to do that. I'm sure that many of you are already drowning in coronavirus news, so I am not going to add to that. I'm mostly just going to say a couple of little things about the outbreak, and then we're going to move on to updates about other stuff. The first thing I want to say is just to reiterate what Dr. Alexandra Filon said in our last update episode, which is to be really mindful of what you are sharing and making sure that it's legit, vetted, verified information. The post from your aunt whose friend has a friend who's a doctor, supposedly, and has this whole Facebook post. Maybe before you share it, look into it and see if it's real. There's also a Twitter post going around about supposedly canals in Venice where the fish have come back and the swans are there. Um, that photo is from a totally different part of Italy. So just be careful before you share stuff. I know that it's really scary right now, and we are all kind of trying to thread this impossible needle of taking this really seriously and taking precautions without tipping into complete abject panic and misinformation. And we all have to do our part to maintain vigilance, but calm, because panic is bad. Panic does not lead to good decision making. Panic leads to hoarding masks, which leads to shortages at hospitals. So please channel the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy here and don't panic. I will post a few resources in the show notes of this episode to places that I think are doing a good job of covering the pandemic, as well as a link again to the World Health Organization's hub of information about the outbreak. I'll also post a couple of resources about why we should all be staying home if we can. So flatten the curve. You've probably heard that phrase by now. And if you're not sure what it means, head to the show notes and I will post a thing that explains it. Okay. One side effect of this flattening the curve of staying inside of social distancing or self-quarantining is that a lot of small businesses are really hurting right now. So if you can, please think about supporting your local independent business owners. So, for example, a lot of restaurants might not be open, but many of them sell merch. So you can buy a shirt or a hat or a gift card. Or maybe there's a mug from a really cool artist that you've been eyeing for a while. Now would really be a great time to buy it or a painting or jewelry or whatever it is that you might have seen that an artist has created. Um, donate to their Patreon. I mean, it really is dicey right now for independent creatives and artists and small businesses. So if you can, if you have the means to do so, now is a really good time to donate, support, buy the thing, do that kind of stuff. The last thing I will say about the pandemic before we move on is that it's been really interesting for me to watch how the virus has created updates on other episodes that are not about a global pandemic at all. So Mitt Romney recently called for the federal government to give everybody $1,000 to help buffer the impact of this virus. That's not a UBI and it's not that much money, but it is significant that it's Mitt Romney, a former Republican presidential candidate 
calling for something like this. And just yesterday, the White House said that they were considering giving the most impacted Americans some money. How much and how it works is still up in the air. But still, if you had told me three months ago that the Trump White House would consider even a watered-down, kind of, sort of version of a UBI, I would probably laugh at you. The pandemic has also gotten people talking about things like prison reform, which we have talked about on three different episodes over the last few years. In Italy, there have been dozens of riots at prisons where inmates recognized that the conditions that they are housed in are basically perfect for spreading a virus like this. A jail in Ohio is currently trying to get permission to release 300 low-risk offenders to reduce the risk of COVID-19 from spreading. Obviously, it's impossible for inmates to socially distance themselves. They are often living in tiny cells with a bunch of other people. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, prisoners and jail inmates are more likely than the general population to have chronic conditions. If COVID-19 did get into a prison, a lot of people would probably die. And so people are talking about ways to potentially release people to keep them safe. Okay, I said I wasn't going to do too much of an update on coronavirus, and I just talked about it for a while. So let's just move on, shall we? Let's do something else. Let's talk about something else. What we are going to do on today's episode is revisit three non-pandemic-related futures. We're going to talk about flights and not flying. We're going to talk about genetic testing companies being acquired and fighting with each other. And we are going to talk about the 2020 census, which is happening right now. Oh, the census, my favorite time of the decade. Census? What's that? Oh, it is a special time when we count each person in every home in all the neighborhoods across the country. But before we get to counting, let's talk about flying. This is a deep cut update. The 10th ever episode of Flash Forward was about a future in which all air travel is banned. Not because of a pandemic, but because it is so bad for the climate. At the time, the idea seemed totally preposterous. And an actual all-around ban on commercial air travel is obviously not going to happen. But in the last five years, there actually has been a growing conversation about flying and whether we should be doing it or not. Greta Thunberg, the 17-year-old Swedish climate activist, sailed to the United States rather than flying to make a point about emissions. And in fact, in Europe, there is a growing movement with a name. It's called flight shame or flexgam, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly. But however you pronounce it, it is working. In 2019, domestic flights in Sweden were down by 8%. And airlines are chalking a lot of that up to this flight shame movement. So I wanted to talk to someone involved in the push to really rethink how much flying we all do. So I called Susanna Elfors, a Swedish environmentalist. Five years ago, Susanna wanted to go to Germany. I knew myself that uh, flying is not sustainable at all. So she tried to do the more environmentally friendly thing and take the train. And she found the whole experience really challenging. Uh, so then uh, I thought uh, maybe I could start a Facebook group for people that they, where they could share their experiences and uh, so on. At first, the Facebook group was pretty small. People traded tips about how to get from one place to another, how to pack, the best routes, where not to go. And then 
In 2018, a Swedish opera singer named Sarah Magdalena Ehrman said that she would no longer fly to perform. Ehrman had been invited to a concert in New Zealand, and she said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fly there. Uh, and when she said, no, I'm not going by plane at all, uh, then people thought, uh, maybe I could change my habits too. Now, one thing you should know about Sarah Magdalena Ehrman is that she is Greta Thunberg's mother. Environmentalism runs in the family, it seems. And when Sarah said she wouldn't fly, Swedes started to wonder, should I not fly too? And the group started to grow. Susanna's group quickly went from just a few thousand members to almost a hundred thousand. And also there was a lot of interest from media, first in Sweden and then it started to come from other countries. It was like Japan, China, United States, Canada, Australia. It was really strange. Politicians came to talk to her. They held demonstrations and workshops and people started really noticing this movement. And I asked Susanna if, when she started this Facebook group, she ever expected to get this kind of attention for it. No, no, no. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Through the Facebook group, they've actually been able to influence policy around transportation in Sweden. There's now a flight tax, and local politicians are working on making their cities more accessible to trains. The flight shame movement in Sweden has also spread to other parts of Europe. And it's gotten enough traction that airline executives are starting to actually worry about it. Alexandra de Huniak, the head of the International Air Transport Association, even addressed it in a speech to the top CEOs in the industry, saying, quote, Unchallenged, this sentiment will grow and spread. And that is exactly what people like Susanna hope will happen. According to one study, carbon dioxide emitted by commercial flights rose by 32 percent between 2013 and 2018. That is way faster than people had predicted. Now, air travel accounts for only about 2.5 percent of global carbon dioxide emissions. And this is something that airlines often point to, saying, hey, why are you picking on us? We're just a small part of the problem. But it's also a part of the problem that you and I can actually make a difference on immediately. Taking fewer flights is not going to save the planet, but climate change is a big enough problem that no one action is going to save us. And it's a lot harder, I don't want to say impossible, but a lot harder for regular people like you and me to have a direct, immediate impact on some of the bigger slices of the climate change pie, like industrial agriculture, or large-scale land-use policies. But what we can do is take a few fewer flights. Now, I know, because I have data about this kind of thing, that most of you are listening from the United States, which means that you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that sounds very cool and good for Europe, but I cannot actually take the train places because our train infrastructure is terrible. That is true. I myself have tried to take the train long distances in the U.S. before, and it is not great. But Susanna points out that in some parts of Europe, the trains aren't that good either. And much like just taking one less flight, if we want to start somewhere and make it a little bit easier and a little bit better step by step, we could start with something small, like she did. I mean, it's hard also in Sweden and Europe. It's not good. Uh, so, so much of the work that we do and within the group is 
to be a channel to improve the conditions and to make the politicians change. So go forth, start a Facebook group if you want to, and maybe we can get some better trains around here. Meanwhile, I will be watching this movement in Europe to see if it continues to have an impact on how people are flying. Okay, that is update number one. Update number two is going to be about genetic testing companies, but first, a very quick break. All right, back to the back to the future episode. (laughs) Back in 2018, I did an episode about what would happen when we all got genetically tested all the time and the weird ins and outs of that future. And as part of that episode, I talked about the ways that genetic testing has completely revolutionized cold cases by allowing forensic investigators to try and identify Jane and John Doe bodies as well as match genetic evidence collected from old crime scenes to potential culprits. Obviously, the most famous case involving genetic genealogy and forensics is the Golden State Killer case. In that case, investigators were able to use a genetic genealogy site called GEDmatch to track down a potential suspect. And earlier this month, the suspect in question, Joseph James D'Angelo, said that he would plead guilty to 13 counts of murder, if the death penalty was taken off the table. But that is actually not the update that we are going to focus on today. The update I want to talk about is about the company in question, GEDmatch, which originally was set up not to catch killers, but to help people find distant relatives. When law enforcement realized how useful databases like this could be, it actually set off a huge rift in the GEDmatch community. Since then, there's been quite a a big and rather bitter division within the genealogy community about the merits of doing this and what the standards for informed consent should be. That's Peter Aldis, a reporter at BuzzFeed News who's been on this beat for years now. And Peter says that since 2018, this division among genetic genealogists has been really heated. There are some people who say... No problem. Let law enforcement have whatever they want. And there are other people who say, no, this is not what I signed up for. This is a violation of my privacy to let law enforcement use my information in this way. As this has has gone on, GEDmatch came under a lot of pressure. As I said, this this became a really bitter, quite angry dispute. And GEDmatch were right in the middle of it. Now, if you are thinking, wait a minute, Rose, hold on. Why in the world would anyone want to stop the cops from getting access to these databases to solve crimes? There are a lot of answers to that question, and we talk about them on the 2018 episode of the show. So go listen to that. I will link to it in the show notes. But for GEDmatch, not only was there this raging debate among its users, there was also added pressure from law enforcement. Last year, a detective in Orlando, Florida, got a warrant to search the entire GEDmatch database. And the founders of GEDmatch, who are caught in the middle of all of this, basically they just didn't know what to do. And, and I think the two founders f- felt that they just didn't have the resources to deal with this sort of issue. Uh, and it was becoming a very difficult situation. So they started looking to sell the company. And so they did. Late last year, they sold GEDmatch to a company called Verigen. And what is Verigen? Verigen 
is a forensic genetics company. They provide DNA testing services directly for law enforcement. And obviously, their main interest in GEDmatch is its value for law enforcement for conducting these investigations. For those who were upset that GEDmatch was letting law enforcement use their data, this is not a great sign. But Verigen claims that they are not going to change the way that GEDmatch is currently set up, which is that you have to opt in to letting your genetic information be searched by law enforcement. They say that they're going to keep the opt-in policy. Then they want GEDmatch to remain uh, a valuable tool for the wider genealogy community, and they don't want to force people to have their DNA profiles be available for searching uh, by the police. Whether that will remain true over time, we will just have to wait and see. I think uh, a lot of genealogists are looking at it and thinking, well, so what is GEDmatch going to be now that it's owned by a forensic genetics company and not by enthusiasts from within our own community? So that is one big update. But this is not the only forensics and law enforcement news to be had. Oh, no, there is more. Because GEDmatch and now Verigen have competitors in this space. It turns out that Family Tree DNA has been collaborating with the FBI for years. And when that story broke, Peter filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get more information about what exactly Family Tree DNA is doing with the FBI. I received, well, we, we sued the uh, FBI over, over their sort of rather sluggish response to my request and eventually uh, obtained some documents in the past few weeks. Um, what they show was uh, kind of revealing, I guess, of rivalries among the companies that are involved in this business. In one email, for example, the CEO of Family Tree DNA was asked to share their database with another crime-solving company called Parabon Nanolabs. And the Family Tree CEO said, nope. They um, said you know, that they wanted to help solve crimes, bring closure to the families of victims. But, uh, you know, that almost their first action after that was to deny access to the database to, I guess, what at that point was a rival company. Some companies have vowed to fight against law enforcement access to their databases. 23andMe, Ancestry.com. They have all said, no, they will not cooperate with these requests. But whether they can actually resist warrants still remains to be seen. About a month ago, a court in Pennsylvania issued Ancestry.com a search warrant asking for access. And Ancestry said it was going to fight the warrant. But what happens next is still sort of unclear. I mean, if the cops can get into the databases of 23andMe, and Ancestry, these huge databases, 10 million for 23andMe, 16 million for Ancestry, um, these cases would become much, much easier to solve. So there's a massive incentive for them to do so. 23andMe and Ancestry have vowed to fight it. The predictions are that this is at some point likely to end up going through the court system, maybe to the Supreme Court. 
And that is something that I will certainly be keeping an eye on and I will keep you updated about. Okay, that's two out of three. When we come back, we're going to talk about the census. But first, a quick break. Okay, time for the last update. It is 2020, which means, drumroll please, it is time for the census. And in fact, the census has already started. It started on January 21st, the day after Martin Luther King Day afternoon in a small remote fishing village uh, along the southwest coast of Alaska. Uh, the name of the village is Tuksuk Bay. I was there. That's Hansi Lo Wang, a reporter at NPR who covers the census. And you heard him on our episode about the census back in 2017. The most remote communities of Alaska are counted first, months before most households can participate, uh, because in January, that's when the ground is still frozen in remote parts of Alaska, which uh, makes it easier for Census Bureau workers to get around to different very far-flung villages that they can fly, which they can do also in the warm months. But when it's cold enough, they can also uh, hop on snow machines or snowmobiles if you're in the lower 48. And they can also sometimes use dog sleds to go from village to village. On our episode in 2017, we talked about all of the ways that the 2020 census was already kind of going not so great. People were worried about hiring enough workers and whether the questionnaire had been tested. And the biggest question on everybody's mind at the time was this debate over one particular question. In 2017, the Justice Department asked the Census Bureau to add a question to the census that asked about citizenship. This request might seem innocuous to you at first, but it has huge implications. The census is supposed to count every person living in the U.S., citizen or not. Lots of people worried that if the census asked about citizenship, it would almost certainly deter non-citizens and their family members from answering the form. Some people also worried that Trump might try to use this data to round up non-citizens and deport them. Overall, experts argued that adding this question would mean that a large number of marginalized people would not respond to the census. And if you do not respond to the census, if you don't get counted, you might not be included in the distribution of services that are based on the census data. We covered this in more detail on the episode, so if you want to go back and listen to that, again, I will link to it in the show notes. But what has actually happened since then? Oh boy, a lot. Before we dig into exactly the back and forth, let me be really, really clear. There is not a citizenship question on the 2020 census. Let me just repeat that because it is really important. There is no citizenship question on the census. Okay, how did we get here? Well, it is a wild ride. It was such a long legal saga. Let's see, how can I wrap this up? Um... So 2017, Trump asks for this question, and pretty quickly, federal courts around the country challenge the request. The main states being California, Maryland, and New York, and they all said, pump the brakes, no thank you on this question. And the main argument they made was that the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, who oversees the census, did not have the discretion to add the question without a reason, and the reason that he provided was not adequate. Uh, U.S. District Judge Jesse Furman said that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross uh, made a smorgasbord, smorgasbord, 
smorgasbord, smorgasbord, I forget, uh, smorgasbord um, of violations of the Administrative Procedure Act. Have you ever actually looked at the word smorgasbord? There is an umlaut and an angstrom. Fun fact. The rest of the world was first introduced to the Swedish smorgasbord in 1939 at the World's Fair in New York, where it was served up at the Swedish Pavilion. Also, try saying Swedish smorgasbord 10 times fast. I had to record this a billion times. Anyway, back to the census. Those smorgasbord rulings were then appealed by the Trump administration, and they went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And based on the way that the justices were asking questions in the session... It sounded like they were ready to allow the Trump administration to actually add this question, despite what lower courts had ruled. But then something very weird happened. There is always a gap between when the Supreme Court hears a case and when the case is officially ruled upon. That gap can sometimes be months, but in this case, everything was sped up because they had to decide so they could start actually printing and prepping the census. And in the midst of this waiting period, there was a bombshell. So in 2018, a guy named Thomas Hoffler died. Thomas Hoffler was a Republican strategist who really made his name as an expert on redistricting. The New Yorker once called him, quote, the master of the modern gerrymander. Hoffler really pioneered this strategy of redistricting electoral maps to favor Republicans in places like North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Here is a direct quote from Hoffler himself about this strategy. He said, quote, redistricting is like an election in reverse. It's a great event. Usually the voters get to pick the politicians. In redistricting, the politicians get to pick the voters. So in August of 2018, Hoffler dies. And his estranged daughter uh, came across hard drives that he had left sitting around. And her mother allowed her to take those hard drives. And she realized that there were a lot of files on their hard drives, including her, her personal materials, but also a lot of her father, Thomas Hoffler's work files. And his daughter goes, hmm, I wonder who might like these work files. And uh, ultimately, she turned them over to an advocacy group that was working with a law firm that was also representing one of the plaintiffs for the citizenship question lawsuits. And when that group looked at those hard drives, they found an unpublished study. Something that Hoffler never made public, but something that he had probably shared around among other strategists. Outlining how adding a citizenship question to a census form would produce data that would give a political advantage to Republicans and non-Hispanic white people. He said it would be advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. In other words, the study found that if you gathered up citizenship data on the census and then used that data to redraw the voting districts based only on citizens of voting age, you would give Republicans and white people an electoral advantage. That was a, a really big turn because that did not come up during the trial over the citizenship question. In fact, until this study was revealed, a lot of people were scratching their heads over why Trump was fighting so hard for this question. Why exactly does the Trump administration want to add this question? Because three federal courts at the trial court level had essentially threw out the stated reason. And again, all of this came out after the Supreme Court had heard the case, but before they had ruled on it. And so nobody really knew whether this would impact their decision. And in fact, 
we still don't know if it did, because when the court issued their ruling, they didn't really talk about it. But ultimately, the Supreme Court decided to uphold the earlier rulings instead of siding with Trump. No citizenship question. But the story didn't end there. Of course not. No, no. Then, once the Supreme Court said no, Trump tweeted that he was looking into other ways to get this question on the census. And they did have an opening to do so. Because, technically speaking, the Supreme Court ruling essentially said, Trump administration, we don't buy your stated reasoning either. It appears to be contrived. This is Chief Justice John Roberts writing on behalf of the majority of the court. But if you were to come back to this court, the Supreme Court, uh, this opinion essentially said, Trump administration, and, and give us a, a better reason to add this question, you could try to do that. And, and we'd review it. Now, at this point, it is the summer of 2019, less than six months away from the census beginning. And amidst all of this back and forth, the people who work on the census were starting to really worry about the actual logistics of getting this census out. We're talking about millions and millions of paper forms, envelopes, postcards, all the mailings that will have to go out to basically almost every household in the country. So we are down to the wire, and everybody is waiting to see what the Trump administration is going to do. And so there was this small window of opportunity, I guess, for the Trump administration to try to, re, to make a new legal argument for adding a citizenship question. And on July 11th, 2019, Trump called a press conference in the White House Rose Garden. President Trump standing next to a silent Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, as well as uh, next to U.S. Attorney General William Barr. There used to be a time when you could answer questions like that very easily. There used to be a time when you could proudly declare, I am a citizen of the United States. Now they're trying to erase the very existence of a very important word and a very important thing, citizenship. The Supreme Court ultimately affirmed our right to ask the citizenship question, and very strongly it was affirmed. But the Supreme Court also ruled that we must provide further explanation that would have produced even more litigation and considerable time delays. And announced that the Trump administration was officially stepping down, pulling back, from trying to get a citizenship question onto the 2020 census, and that instead, President Trump issued an executive order. Today, I will be issuing an executive order to put this very plan into effect immediately. The executive order was basically a reiteration of something that Trump had already asked for, which was for the Census Bureau to request already existing citizenship data from other federal agencies in order to produce a data set that would tell you whether every person living in the United States is a U.S. citizen or not. It remains to be seen how exactly the Census Bureau is going to respond to this executive order, or what the administration will do with that data set if it is ever created. But there will be, once again, no citizenship question on the census. But that does not mean that the census's woes are over. Oh, no. The 2020 census is the first census that will be primarily conducted online. So you can, right now, go to my2020census.gov and fill out the form. But of course, being online has its drawbacks, too. Some experts are worried about census data being hacked or manipulated by bad actors. 
And because the census has been underfunded, the risk might be higher than it would have been otherwise. And even if most people fill out the form online, not everybody has access to the internet. And it is really important for the census to count everybody. And to do that, the census has to hire lots of workers to go around and make sure that every single person gets counted. These workers are critical to the Bureau's plans to making sure that historically undercounted communities are counted in the 2020 census, that disproportionately the households that need to get an in-person visit from a Census Bureau worker to, to get that door knock and to make sure their information is collected, those households, those households are disproportionately from communities of color. And so if there are any challenges and, and there are any shortfalls in, in having enough workers uh, and putting more pressure on those who are hired, uh, that could jeopardize um, the accuracy of the census information collected about people of color and immigrants, as well as other historically undercounted groups. To do all this counting, the Census Bureau needs to hire about 500,000 people. The last time the country did this, it was 2010, and people really needed jobs. Today, unemployment is actually relatively low. So the Bureau uh, has, had, has, had, has been struggling to meet their recruiting goals to make sure that they have enough, a big enough applicant pool to ultimately then have half a million uh, workers to do that follow-up work. Of course, the current global pandemic is not helping the census either. The Census Bureau has said that it is evaluating its plans on going door-to-door to collect data due to the outbreak. I will keep an eye on what happens with the 2020 census, and if anything big occurs, I will let you know. But I do really want to emphasize how important it is to be counted in this big, giant count. The census will determine how over $675 billion, with a B, in government funds is spent every year. That's infrastructure, healthcare, school lunches, and tons of other social safety net programs. Plus, the census is how states draw their electoral maps. According to a group called Election Data Services, at least 17 states will probably gain or lose seats and therefore electoral college votes based on the 2020 census. Not being counted has a real impact on your community's social services and who represents you in government. Again, there is no citizenship question on the census. And census data is private. There is a federal law that says that census data cannot be shared with law enforcement agencies, landlords, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It is illegal for the U.S. Census Bureau to share your personal information for 72 years after it's collected. The census is an incredibly ambitious project that attempts to do something really, really hard. I mean, think about it. We are trying to count literally every single person who lives in this giant country. So while you are socially distancing yourself at home, please consider taking the time to fill it out. You can do it online in between watching TikToks or listening to podcasts. If you are currently living in the United States, you can go to my2020census.gov. I will link to it in the show notes as well. This episode is not sponsored by the census. I just think it's important for you to know what's going on. The last thing I will say about the census is just a quick PSA for listeners who might be trans and or non-binary. There is a question on the census that asks for your sex. 
and it gives you two options, male or female. I know that having to answer a question like that can be really hard and upsetting for some people. So I just wanted to prepare you so that you know it's coming. Um, And if you know that that question will ruin your day or your week, here is my recommendation. If you can, ask a friend or a partner or roommate or somebody in your life who's near you and socially distancing with you to fill out that part of the form for you. It's its own little page and you can just walk away, have them check the box, go next, and then you can just come back to it and finish the rest of it. So that's just a quick suggestion, PSA, heads up, so you know. Okay, those are the updates for this episode. Flash Forward is back with brand new official real bona fide episodes on April 14th. Between now and then, the book, the Flash Forward book is due. So um, just like imagine, you know, the gif of Kermit flailing. That's what's happening inside my brain right now. But I'm really excited about it. It's going to be really cool. I'm working on it. It's going to get done. We're going to get it in. It's going to happen. Okay. I'm also going to be totally honest with you that it is kind of hard sometimes right now to focus on flash forward work amidst all of the coronavirus pandemic information and news going on. Um, Sometimes I am like, what am I even doing? Like, who cares? Why am I making this like silly show about the future? People are going to die. Um, And other times I wonder if anyone is even going to listen to something that is not about the outbreak. It feels like it's just sort of completely saturating everything right now. But a friend recently texted me that they had gone back and listened to the pandemic episode that we did back in 2018. And they told me that listening to it actually made them feel a little bit better. And when I admitted to them that I was having trouble feeling like this podcast is important in these current trying times, they said this. They said, your show reminds people that it's important to think about and plan for the future. And that is true. Obviously, no amount of planning can overcome gross mismanagement and leadership. But planning and thinking through scenarios really does help us make better decisions. And also, sometimes we just need a little bit of relief from the current timeline, don't we? So I have some really fun stuff planned for the season. And next week, I'm going to drop some really fun behind-the-scenes stuff about the book and the upcoming season for patrons. So if you like the show and you want to donate and get that cool stuff, you can head to patreon.com slash flashforwardpod and you'll get all of that. Plus, if you become a patron, I will send you a personal video. I'm doing this new thing that I'm trying, and hopefully it's not creepy, and hopefully it's cool. Um, But yeah, I actually record a specific personal video where I will say your name and wave at you, and you'll probably see my dog or my office or something like that. Um, So if that is exciting to you in some way, um, you can go to patreon.com and become a patron at Flash Forward Pod, um, and you'll get a little video. Okay, that is all for now. Wash your hands. Take care of each other. Talk to you soon. Bye. So I thought about ending this episode by playing the usual flash forward intro music backwards because like it's a back to the future thing. We're going backwards in time, sort of. Uh, But here is what that sounds like. So yeah, I decided not to do that, but I did want to share it with you because it made me laugh. And I think we maybe all need a little bit of laughing right now. Yes. Okay. Bye for real this time.